Now, if you turn with me to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. So we begin this morning a series that will probably take us through the end of the year, working through the greatest sermon ever preached on the face of this earth, the Sermon on the Mount. We'd read in chapter 4, verse 17, that Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. You might ask, what does that proclamation look like? And here in chapters 5 to 7, we're given the contents of what it looks like for Jesus to proclaim the arrival of the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 5, this morning we'll read verses 1 to 12, and we'll be in this passage for probably the next two months or so. Seeing the crowds... Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as uh, we come now to hear uh, your Savior pronounce blessing upon his people, and we pray that we would be blessed in the hearing of the word, that you would strengthen our faith and lead us in the path of righteousness, we ask in the name of Christ who died and was raised for us. Amen. Every Lord's Day in accordance with God's word, we uh, end every morning service the exact same way with a benediction placed upon the people of God. As it goes something like this, may the Lord bless you and keep you. But what does such blessedness look like? What does such happiness look like? Every Sunday, week in and week out, it, we, we have a, 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 a bookend of blessing where the proclamation of grace and peace, that sin has been dealt with at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now at the end of every service, the Lord sends his people out with a blessing. But we have to ask ourselves, what does the blessed and happy life look like? You know, if you, you were to think about it, ask anyone on the street, you would find that every man wants to be happy. Every man, woman, and child wants goodness to follow him and to overtake him, to inundate and flood his life. The question is, what does that goodness and happiness look like? What is truly the blessed life? And that is where I think we will find different answers as we ask different people on the streets. I think by and large, you ask people, you go downtown uh, to Corvallis, Corvallis, and you ask people, well, what is the good life? 
What is it that would make you happy? I think everybody would answer to some degree or another influence and ease. Be it political equality, be it higher wages or lower taxes, at least for themselves. But who on earth would ever say that real blessing and true happiness looks like getting the short end of the stick? Nobody on earth would say that. They would say, oh man, the, the great blessing comes when we're persecuted. I love it. I love being poor in spirit. I love being merciful. I love taking it on the chin and being meek and not retaliating. Nobody on earth would say that. This morning we find that one has come from heaven to earth to say just that. As our Savior opens his mouth, King Jesus pronounces a blessing that inverts all expectations of what the hallmark of true blessedness really looks like. As we'll take you to these blessings and turn over the next several weeks this morning, I'd like us to take a step back and consider the big picture to make sure we're understanding what it is that Jesus is actually doing. What is Jesus telling us about the happy life as it comes to us from heaven above, as heaven has now come to invade earth, as Jesus comes to establish his heavenly kingdom on earth? So I'd like us to approach this passage from uh, not particularly three different sections, but three different angles or vantage points. First, we'll consider the contrast of kingdoms as we see that the heavenly kingdom here looks very different from the kingdoms of this world. Secondly, I'd like us to consider the blessings of the kingdom. In other words, what imprint does Christ's kingdom make on the lives of the citizens of this kingdom? And then finally, we'll consider the king of the kingdom. So a contrast of kingdoms, the blessings of the heavenly kingdom, and the king of this kingdom. Well, even here prior to chapter 5, the question of the kingdom looms large in Matthew's thought. Chapter 1, we've already seen it demonstrated that Christ is the promised king, the one who would inherit the everlasting throne and save his people from their sins. In chapter 2, we read of the birth of the king, and his life is contrasted even as a baby boy with the kingdoms of men. Among the surrounding kingdoms here that dwell in deep darkness, light has come. And though Israel was to be a light and beacon to the nations, rather we have a kingdom that looks just like Pharaoh's kingdom of old. Herod, the wicked, the villainous, the treacherous, and murderous king who slaughters infants. What is righteous about that? The priests and scribes faring no better. And yet in chapters 3 and 4, we're told that this uh, promised king is the obedient son of God, um, the promised servant of the Lord of Isaiah who would come and bring light to those who were sitting in deep darkness to proclaim those glad tidings among men, to proclaim the blessings of the kingdom. And here we see that the content of the proclamation of the kingdom is spelled out here in the, ser- the Sermon on the Mount. The first thing we should notice here as Jesus opens his mouth is how differently Jesus' kingdom differs from every other kingdom on earth. What does the good life look like? You're to go down to Winco 
and look at the magazines in the grocery store aisle, or to go to the book bin downtown and look at the self-help section, or to scroll the social media accounts of the so-called content creators. What would happiness actually look like? Magazine aisles would say it's a new and better you. Happiness is found in self-confidence and having an extreme makeover. It's found in popularity and self-worth and being found as uh, the life of the party. Where success is achieved by the assertive, the entrepreneurial spirit, even if such a spirit requires a merciless cutthroat approach to one's own competitors, either with a rival business or rival members within the same office vying for that same position of authority and power. Sure, we read of uh, how from time to time the the media will pop up uh, uh, the billionaire philanthropist. But why is he to be heeded? He is to be heeded because of his estate, his wealth, his notoriety. Where he's set before the world as somebody to model uh, and, and, and to imitate, and yet the news comes out. The wicked things that take place behind closed doors. You see, what the kingdoms of this world do is they locate happiness in external circumstances. In wealth or positivity, and strength, glamour. Even if you have to get there by ruthless, thieving, or divisive means. Even if the ones that you, are, you admire are corrupt warmongers. So long as they are powerful, they are often idolized. I remember as a kid uh, seeing a, a commercial on uh, the TV. Uh, back in the day when commercials relied so heavily on the, the jingle uh, the, the little kind of ditty that was sung. And, and this particular uh, jingle, of course, was the, the, the Green Giant. You know, remember, ho, 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 Green Giant. And what was it? It was a cartoon of a little boy who goes out into a, uh, in, into a, a forest and he, and he meets the jolly Green Giant who simply looks like a bigger version of him, only green. I think when it comes to thinking about the kingdom of heaven, and we see this through the gospel of Matthew, there is that temptation to take our natural expectations of what the kingdoms of this world looks like and simply to make the kingdom of heaven a bigger version. Much like the jolly green giant. Looks just like us, only bigger. Oh, there's a new kingdom on the rise? Well, let's take up arms and join the Messiah as he kicks Rome to the curb through a force of arms. Isn't that uh, the the, the temptation that even some of Jesus' own followers have? Even in the Gospels. Or when we read here of the blessings that Jesus pronounces, how our hearts are immediately drawn uh, to the temptation of the blessed life is consisting in material wealth and possessions and living our best life now. How many books do you see in a, a Christian book section if you're to drive all the way down to, let's say, the Barnes and Noble in Eugene and you're to look at the Christian uh, life section. How many books just simply look like a self-help manual with the name Jesus kind of slapped on as an afterthought? 
You see that the kingdom of heaven is not simply a bigger, uh, more powerful, or more durable version of the kingdoms of this world. It is completely upside down. It is completely different from everything that the kingdoms of this world has to offer. Jesus does not come and say, blessed are the self-assertive, blessed are the happy and the merciless. Just the opposite. The difference is as great as night from day, in fact. We could even say it's the difference between light and darkness. Because that's the very thing that the kingdom of Christ comes to bring is a kingdom of light and life. Jesus' entire message, and this was the message of John the Baptist as well as we have seen, that the heavenly kingdom is coming. It has erupted into this present darkness. And it is a kingdom that operates according to a completely different set of rules. How different the world's view of happiness is from the happiness of heaven. According to this world, happiness is found in pleasure in those external circumstances. But here, according to the rules of heaven, happiness, the blessed life, consists in a virtue that perseveres under trial of a character that responds in grace and mercy, even in the face of those who would seek to put you to death. You see here that Jesus proclaims what life in the kingdom looks like as the kingdom of light intrudes in the midst of darkness. Jesus has come to establish a kingdom, but what does this kingdom look like as the light goes out and conflicts with the life and the worldview of those who continue to dwell in darkness. And so we see here that these blessings take on a particular form as this kingdom engages with the kingdom of darkness. And so we see here the blessings of the kingdom take on this particular form. Light has shined in the darkness so naturally the kingdom that comes from heaven should upend worldly expectations including our own. So Jesus makes these pronouncements of blessing. And I I think the first thing we need to notice here is that uh, that we need to see these blessings as just that. They are pronouncements of blessing. They are not natural dispositions. What do I mean by that? So every year I decide, uh, just for fun, I I, I like to read in my my spare time. And and every year I pick a different author or theme or or something that binds together the, the, the series of books that I decide to read each year. And this year I've decided to, that I'm going to try to read uh, some of the great 19th century novels. Uh, you think of Charles Dickens, uh, you think of uh, Victor Hugo, you think of uh, Dostoevsky. Uh, and, and so that's kind of my reading program for fun uh, throughout the year. Of course, the, the, the books are very large, so I've not read an awful lot this year because they take such a long time. One of the things that I have noticed is that there seems to be a recurring theme among some of these novelists. You know, you read Charles Dickens or Victor Hugo, for instance, and there's this, this interesting theme that, that seems to pervade both of them that, that seem to treat poverty as a virtue in itself. You, know, you think of Bob Cratchit in A Christmas Carol or the characters of Les Miserables. That there seems to be a certain blessedness that naturally befits those who are materially impoverished. That is not what Jesus is doing here. That Jesus is not pronouncing a blessing upon those with certain natural or material dispositions or possessions. 
And again, we're going to talk about this more in the coming weeks, but don't get me wrong. Scripture has a lot to say about the, the, the spiritual dangers that at, uh, attend material wealth, but Scripture also says an awful lot about the fact that the poor can be just as much consumed with greed as the rich. And so you have to take each of those in proper turn. What we need to see here is that when Jesus pronounces a blessing, he is pronouncing a spiritual blessing upon people who have been thrust into a particular circumstance in such a way that these are not natural dispositions. In other words, Jesus is not pronouncing a special blessing on distinct economic classes like the poor or the rich. He's not pronouncing a special blessing on certain political parties or on even particular ethnic groups. When he says blessed or happy are the poor, he's not pronouncing all poor people to be blessed. Likewise, when he says blessed or happier than meek, he's not giving a special benediction to those with a quiet disposition who simply don't happen to be as self-assertive as others. No, what he's doing here is something different. And we see it here in the way in which Jesus frames the blessings. Uh, Look with me here. If you notice this, and and we call this particular section the Beatitudes because it comes from uh, the Latin word for for blessing. Just leave it at that. And that's why they call these uh, the Beatitudes. But you'll notice that the first and last blessing uh, in this section are identical. Notice in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then you see that last blessing in verses 10 to 12, that should be seen as a single blessing. Blessed are the persecuted, for what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus, is, uh, the, the Beatitudes are bookended by a promise of the kingdom of God which is, as Matthew has already said, the central theme to Jesus' own preaching ministry. The point is this, by bookending the kingdom of heaven, saying this belongs to you, Jesus is in effect, is in effect saying all of this is a blessing of the kingdom. It's a bookend of blessings. You should see the kingdom of God as the great gift to the people of God. That all of these blessings are, in fact, a gift of the kingdom. And as the kingdom of God is inaugurated through the person and work of Christ, we find that the citizens of this kingdom get a foretaste of what that kingdom looks like even before the day that the kingdom is finally consummated. Again, this is a point that Jesus is going to make throughout as he gives his parables on the kingdom, as we'll see in in the coming months over the next year. That though the kingdom has been, is being inaugurated through the work of Christ, it will not be consummated until the day of his return. Thus, the kingdom of God continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. And so it takes on that particular character as it comes into conflict with the kingdom of darkness. And those who are citizens of the kingdom of God will take on this particular character. Their lives will look like this. That is the great blessing that comes to us by the Spirit. And because the kingdom has not yet been fully consummated, because it is present but not yet fully realized, we see that some of these blessings are present, and yet there is the promise, uh, some of these promises are also said to be future. 
right? Theirs is the kingdom of God. It's a present possession. The kingdom of God belongs to you if Christ is your king and savior. What a blessing that is. And yet, for everything sandwiched in between these bookended blessings, there are future promises that remain of which we get foretastes here and there. There's is the kingdom of heaven, it's the present possession, and yet there comes a day, the day of Christ's return, when we shall see God, when we shall receive the adoption of son, uh, as sons, which Paul says consists in the resurrection of our earthly bodies. We're already considered to be sons, and yet Paul says there is, in one sense, another day, we're still awaiting that adoption. There's an already and yet not yet aspect to these blessings that we have and are given in Christ. The kingdom of heaven is ours, and yet there is the promise of a future possession of the earth as well. And so my my point here is this, that these blessings that Jesus pronounces, they are not uh, blessings upon natural dispositions. You know, all right, you know, we want all the, the, the naturally meek kids to be over here. We want all the natural peacemakers to be over here, as if you're, you're assigning different groups. No, this is to be taken as a whole. We're given a portrait of what the people of God look like. These are not natural dispositions, but we have to notice they are not commands or conditions either. Jesus does not speak here in giving a command saying, get hungry so that you can be satisfied with righteousness. How many of us treat the Beatitudes as yet another law? How many people read the Beatitudes and go, man, I I got to learn to be more merciful today. And and there's a a certain sense where we have to to reckon with the reality of what uh, life looks like in the kingdom. But we have to notice that these are not commands, nor are these conditions. In fact, when you, when you look at these uh, in, in this passage, there's only two commands given in this entire passage in verses 1 to 12, and it's found in verse 12. And what is that command? It is, it is to rejoice and to be glad because of how the world is treating you. So the, these are not a series of commands, nor are these a series of conditions where Jesus is saying, well, if you are poor in spirit, then you'll inherit the kingdom. You go, okay, well, now I've just got to get poor in spirit. I kind of got to grunt and kind of grit my teeth to become this way. No, Jesus is simply saying this, the citizens of the heavenly kingdom are blessed, even if from the world's perspective it does not look like a blessing. Our whole concept of blessing needs to be flipped up on its head. We tend to read the Beatitudes as something like this. The first half of each verse is a command or a condition, and the second half is the blessing. If you make peace, then God will adopt you as his son. Where the blessings then become contingent upon our own character, and then we see how short our own character falls up to that standard, this blessing becomes yet another law, and it becomes suffocating. But that's not the point of Jesus' message here. What we find is the whole of each verse is the blessing. That to be poor in spirit is itself a blessing as well. To be meek is a blessing. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is itself a blessing as well. Why do I say that? Because such character is indicative of your real citizenship and your heavenly home. That for the one who is 
poor in spirit, for the one who is meek, for the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. This is the mark of the man who recognizes that this world and the kingdoms of this world cannot satisfy. And that true blessedness is not found in what this world has to give. And what a blessing it is because we cannot even recognize that on our own. It takes the work of the Spirit. No natural man could come to these conclusions of his own accord. These are not blessings to be earned or a status to attain. This is the promise given. A promise that is only received by faith. And so we need to make sure we're reading this passage in its proper context. As Jesus comes to the people of God and says, are you confused as to why life feels upside down? Does your heart say, oh Lord, please do not mark my sins against me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus will keep coming back to this point over and over again. Which one truly truly understands the kingdom? Is it the Pharisee or the tax collector? Is it the self-righteous, self-made man, or is it the prostitute who recognizes that they have no righteousness to call their own, and they need an alien righteousness? They need a gracious God to be merciful to them. The true blessing is the man who recognizes his pitiful condition and says, I am poor, and I am bereft of such things. And Jesus says, here is the good news, that the, the citizens of the kingdom that's, that, that characterizes you. It is not the man who is self-satisfied with his own righteousness that is a citizen of heaven. It is the one who says, I need a righteousness that is not of my own. That such feelings of spiritual poverty and hunger show that you're not finding satisfaction in your own goodness or in the goodness and wealth and prosperity that this world has to offer. And such fortitude of character can only come by the Spirit's work in your heart. And that is the gospel of the kingdom. That the Spirit is here to make you look like those very things. This is not a command. This is a promise that if you are Christ, He will make you look like this. And it really makes sense when our life feels turned upside down and you think, where is the blessing why is the pastor pronounced blessed, uh, you know, may the Lord bless you and keep you, and now my whole life this week feels upended? Perhaps we need to reconsider what true blessing looks like as we find that Christ is making us fit for the kingdom of heaven. Though it is painful now, it shows that our citizenship is in heaven. It is not here on earth. The great blessing is that the Spirit is at work to make you look like God's beloved Son, the King of the kingdom, which leads us here to our final point. You see, it is here that we discover the secret to the kingdom, that the great blessing is found in the fact that our Heavenly Father is at work to make us look like Jesus. Notice the blessings that we read of here. Who could ever fit this description? One who is meek, one who is pure in heart, one who is merciful, one who is persecuted fully for righteousness sake and yet does not retaliate. One who has come to make peace. This here, these blessings give us a portrait of the character of the kingdom because it reflects a portrait of the character of the king of that kingdom. Here are the blessings of the kingdom as a portrait of the king. And Jesus pronounces a blessing that he has sent his spirit to make you look like him. 
And that is the great promise that the Spirit is at work in your hearts and in my heart. Even though that blessing takes the shape of a cross. And here, this is where we find the answer to our question, how is it that a life bookended by poverty and persecution could ever consider, be considered to be blessed? It is because that blessing comes in a cruciform shape. God blesses his children by weeding us off of the world like a piano that's out of tune. He retunes us to echo the harmony and melody of heaven itself. And it sounds strange and foreign to earthly ears. And yet this blessing is addressed to those of us who are in the thick of it, to those of us who are spiritually weak, to those of us who are tired, to those of us who mourn the reality of sin and misery in our own hearts and in the world around us, to those of us who are tired and weak, to those of us who feel the impress of the cross and are tempted to think that God has abandoned them. Jesus says quite the opposite. Blessed are you when you are persecuted and those around you slander your name and accuse you falsely for my sake. Whoever would say that that's a good day on earth, well, Jesus does. Jesus says it's a blessing because the Spirit is making you look like me. And that is the great task of the Spirit. And that is the great blessing that we have not only been saved by the Son, but we have been united to the Son that we might look like the Son. Here we find that the Spirit is molding and shaping us to look like Christ in His suffering that we might know His resurrection power, that the power of Christ might live through us to demonstrate that anything good that happens is not because of the works of our flesh, but according to the grace of God and God alone. This is why the world cannot comprehend Christ's kingdom. For the same reason why the darkness is unable to comprehend the light, according to John 1. Because it is so radically different. So the world looks at the church, it looks at the citizens of heaven and says, you're cursed. Who would ever want to live a life like this? If If I'm called to tally up all these things, why would I want to give up riches and wealth and fame and notoriety in exchange for poverty and meekness and a cross? The answer is because you don't understand what true blessing looks like. It takes the shape of the cross because it is only through the cross that heaven is attained. It is only through the cross of Christ that we are made citizens of heaven because the blessings of God are not merited. They are only received. They are not earned. They are only inherited. Thomas Wright Watson, a Puritan of the 17th century, writes this in his book on the Beatitudes. He says, <coughs> I paraphrase, the godly man might be under a cross, but that cross is not a curse. Rather, it is the greatest blessing of them all. Yet how many people would look at a life lived under the cross and think, what an accursed life. That's why Paul calls this the foolishness of the cross. Because it is foolishness to the world around us, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, this is not an abstract philosophy. It plays itself out in the day-to-day in what the Christian life truly looks like. And it's a promise that if you belong to Christ, the Spirit will be at work to make you look like this. He will work to make you poor in spirit. That is a great blessing. Because if He does that in your heart, yours is the kingdom of heaven. 
He is at work to make you meek. Because it is only the meek that shall inherit the earth, according to Psalm 37.11. Because Christ is the great peacemaker, the Spirit is at work to make you one who also seeks to make peace. And as we all know, anybody who tries to be the mediator between two uh, opposed parties so often gets caught in the crosshairs of conflict. Blessed are you when you stand up for righteousness' sake. And the world hates you for it, because so they hated me, and so they hated the prophets that came before me, so will they hate you. The Beatitude seems so foreign to us because we want the blessings of heaven apart from the cross. And yet Thomas Watson and Jeremiah Burroughs writes that those who want heaven apart from the cross are strangers to religion. So why is this significant? I think there are three things to take away as we begin uh, the series considering these Beatitudes uh, one by one. I think the first is this. I think the Beatitudes show us our need to be more heavenly minded. How easy it is to try to take these blessings and to fit them and, and push them through a prism of earthly mindedness. Where again, we try to simply make the kingdom of heaven simply a bigger version of what this world has to offer rather than the exact opposite. How fitting it is that Jesus begins his sermon on the kingdom by talking about the nature of this kingdom because we have to understand the nature of the kingdom of God. It is not an earthly kingdom, it is a heavenly one. Even as Jesus appears before Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. It is spiritual. And so the church must learn or relearn what it means to be heavenly minded, to be part of a kingdom that doesn't operate according to worldly principles and guidelines. We cannot twist notions of justice according to earthly principles. They must be guided by the principles and law of heaven. We cannot debase notions of blessedness simply into, to turn it into means of, of, of gaining material prosperity where we immediately equate blessings with material wealth and health. Because the blessings of the kingdom seem to look the exact opposite. We cannot project notions of worldly power onto the church and now make that our mission, as if the mission of the church is simply to, have, to be at the head of the cultural table. No, the blessings here take the shape of a cross because they're preparing us for the consummation of heaven on earth. Second significant feature is this, the Christ's kingdom on earth is not found in the White House, it is not found in London or Westminster Abbey, it is not found in Rome, it is not found in Moscow. As we confess, Christ's kingdom has been established on earth and the visible manifestation of Christ's kingdom is not found in the civil sphere, it is found within the body of Christ and the people of God. So the church ought to reflect the heavenly character of the kingdom instead of the political powers of this age. It is true, every civil government owes allegiance to Christ as king. It is their duty to see righteousness established and have the gospel spread peaceably. There is a certain duty that the civil magistrate owes to Christ as king of kings. But it is not the church's responsibility to try to overthrow the government and it is to establish a theocratic state in its place. Rather, our job is to call people to repentance and faith 
and to prepare for the return of Christ and to call others to prepare for the return of Christ before it is too late. The final point is this. We need to reclaim the Beatitudes as the good news that it really is. This is not another law. This is a pronouncement of blessing. Moses ascends the top of the mountain and he pronounces to Israel the curses of the law. Cursed be upon all who fail to live up to the standards of the law. Deuteronomy chapter 28. And yet here we see one who comes greater than Moses standing on a mountain and he opens his mouth and he does not say cursed, 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 cursed. Rather, he says blessed, 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 blessed are you. I mean, to consider the, pers- the, the personal and pastoral care that Christ shows His people here. Are, are you struggling with assurance of God's love as you, as you consider uh, the craziness of the, the things that are happening throughout the week? Do you look at yourself and see how bereft you are of righteousness and, and you hunger for something greater and you say, uh, do I truly belong to God because I, I feel so alone? Have you ever been slandered? Where people have spoken behind you, behind your back for the sake of righteousness and the sake of Christ. And you go, where's God in the midst of this? Have you ever tried to make peace and got caught in the crosshairs just trying to do the right thing? Have you been rejected by your friends for the sake of Christ? Well, though it might feel like a curse according to worldly standards, Christ says, oh no, you're blessed because you're mine. Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to you, not them. Take heart. The world may see your circumstances as a curse, but what a blessing. If your heavenly Father has seen fit to make you look just like me. Or as Jesus says to his, his disciples, fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would bless your word and your people. That you would take this passage of Scripture as we consider it over the next few months. And give us new glasses through which we see and interpret the circumstances that we undergo to see the ways in which you truly are blessing your church. Grant us grace, we pray, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.